1: It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
0: You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered.
1: Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations.
0: I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show.
1: As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations.
0: Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true.
1: Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process.
0: For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lisbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest.
1: As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7.
0: I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them, at
1: least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A Spoonful of Sugar Always Helps the Medicine Go Down.
0: Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance Trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series.
1: And a fun time travel mind-bender with predestination to cap things off.
0: Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com
1: slash originals. Diving into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today, thenextreel.com slash originals. Uh, the trailer, Andy, uh, all I got is the re-release. What do you got? Did you find anything? Disappointing. Yeah, I looked too, and I couldn't find it either. And, you know, it's... it's uh, I feel a little bit uh, guilty because I did not actually look on the DVD, which I actually (laughs) rented from Netflix. It's like if there's one place that might have had it, it would have been there, and I did not look. Well, you just (laughs) said
0: that, and now I need to go over to see if it came. It did not come with the
1: iTunes. That was just just movie. No extras. Mm, Sucks. What are you going to do? The DVD, I know, had a couple extras, uh, one was kind of about you know uh, interviewing a real tugboat captain whose tugboat they use and are you uh, kidding stuff like that yeah no a real tugboat talk-
0: the tugboat yeah. guy
1: yeah. yeah or it might not be a tugboat guy but it was it was a guy who like ran something involved with the real locations that they used for for the movie um so yeah they they talked to him there was something about uh Barbara Streisand but I I can't remember if the if the uh um, trailer if the trailer was on the dvd so mm-hmm. uh, regardless we did watch the uh, trailer for the remastered re-release that had a, a limited run in uh, 2001
0: we did watch that trailer
1: and it was exactly like the re-release trailer of the last movie we
0: talked about <laughs> it was, you get a little of the comedy some uh, music you get some of the highlight songs and uh, you get babs uh uh, and you get, Hey, look, there's a bed in the dining room, a little bit of comedy moments. She flies away over the ballet. You know, I, I think by the time this trailer came out, we already knew the movie. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure that we were, I, I guess I shouldn't say that. But by the time the movie came out or the trailer came out, I feel like I had known the movie. You had not. What do you, what do you think of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it would have been my int- If I had seen this trailer, um, it would have been my introduction to the movie because I had never seen it. Um, I really knew nothing of the movie. And it was one of those, uh, it was a trailer that I, I, I don't feel it does any job at all of introducing the story. It really is just introducing, um, you know, the musical and Barbra Streisand in it. And you get little bits and pieces of lots of songs throughout. But, yeah, there's not much of a, of a sense of kind of the the story of her uh, you know rise of her career and her marriage and the collapse of it. You don't get any of that in the in this uh, remastered trailer. I've
0: been thinking a lot about that, Andy,
1: and I wonder why that is. It,
0: it, because I've been asking people, as we've been talking about gearing up for this over the last week, I've been asking people, do you remember Funny Girl? Do you remember the movie? Everybody remembers Barbara Streisand. People remember people. Uh, they remember Greatest Star and uh, Parade, uh, but do they remember what the movie is about? No, nobody, nobody remembers what the movie's about. Oh, <laughs> that's the one about uh, f- Fanny something, Funny Girl, Fanny something, Barbra Streisand, people. That's pretty much what you get. And uh, I-, I wonder if these, if is it that the story itself is just not as memorable as the music?
1: Yeah, it's one of those musicals that it, it feels very much of its time, uh, you know, it fits that world. And the songs are really the standout and the, I guess you could say the performances within, but is it, uh, is it something that stands out as an exceptional musical? And uh, this trailer seems to be emphasizing the music and kind of giving giving us that point that, hey, mm-hmm. come see it again for the music because that's why it's great.
0: Yeah and I wonder if that does if if that does a disservice to the story itself because it's not a bad story it's a, it is an interesting story and I have some issues with it but uh it it tells the story with obviously some uh they they take some uh, leave of the truth in in some cases, but uh, it, it's an interesting story, and it is a massive story. It's a long movie, and I don't think the trailer does a good job of really selling the scope and scale of the story of Fanny Bryce. I think it goes for the low blows and, and moves right along.
1: Just to confirm, I looked up the DVD. It only has those two featurettes. Okay. It does not actually feature the trailer, so we have no opportunity to compare the two. Well, suck fest.
0: Hello, gorgeous. Who is the pip Columbia
1: Pictures is proud to present Barbara Streisand. Yeah,
0: you're going to be a big star someday, Miss.
1: Uh... Uh, Bryce, Fanny Bryce. I'd rather be. Blue. In her Academy Award-winning film debut. The whole world will look at me and be stunned. Even Jake the Plumber. He... Fully restored to its original roadshow presentation. You mean I'm hired? I'm a Ziegfeld girl. That's exactly what you are. <sighs> I'm a Ziegfeld girl.
0: You planning to make advances? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight of the show, we're part of the Eight Beautiful Girls Eight with the inimitable Fanny Bryce in the 1968 film, Funny Girl. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The
1: And if you enjoy this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation to our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Discord, help us pick movies for upcoming series, and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk lists each week that relate to our current show— this next week, we're comparing lists of our favorite movies that feature young people aspiring to greatness on the stage or screen, just like in this movie. Head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel and sign up. Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, it's all right. I'm one of the eight beautiful
0: girls, Eight. Oh, the makeup helps a lot. So, uh, Funny Girl, you hadn't seen it. Uh, uh, for me, it's been a long time. Uh, but, uh, you know, the music, as a, as, a, as a guy who grew up singing... I'm, I'm that guy. I'm the musical theater guy. And these songs were very, very important uh, in high school. They were audition songs. Uh, they were, you know, it, Funny Girl was an important musical when I was going through high school and college, uh, undergrad. And so I, I feel like I had an understanding of the story, even though I think I'd only seen the movie once um, before I'd gotten into it.
1: How did it hit you? You know, I I liked it. I enjoyed it. I was never bored by it. I I didn't know what I was in for at all. I didn't know it was a biopic. I didn't really have any sense of what it was, other than the fact that Barbara Streisand was in it. Like I just didn't know anything about this thing. And uh, as soon as it starts, and and uh, you know, right out of the gate, you know, we we meet her as our as our. Uh, protagonist and she has her famous line hello gorgeous which is like oh this is that movie this is where that's from yeah i now i now i can say i've seen that movie and check it off my list <laughs> um i i enjoyed it it felt very much like a musical of the 60s um and i feel like our our conversation about the trailer fits very much in line with how i ended up feeling about it I the music really stood out for me. Uh at least at least a good chunk of the tracks did. Um I, I really enjoyed them. I enjoyed the staging. I enjoyed Wyler's direction. I think William Wyler has a very assured hand with his with his uh actors, and I feel he has a a, a good understanding of his camera and how to move it and be um, uh, efficient with everything. Um but yeah, the story, it 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 did have a kind of that 60s musical feel where the musical feels like it's going somewhere for the first half. And then the second half, it has kind of this turn and you get a much shorter second half and you're like, oh, OK, well, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that's where the story was going. And that's good in a story. You like to not necessarily know where it's going, but like a lot of musicals, it's like, oh, okay. I I guess that's I guess that's okay. It, it you know I didn't end up um, loving kind of the overall story, um, but uh, but I still enjoyed it. What is it about it that you, didn't, that you didn't love in terms of the overall
0: story? My, my issues come down to uh, sort of the, the, the pacing of the individual character arcs and the way they tie together. I have some real challenges with that, and I think they, they help sort of deflate the story. But I'm curious where your where problems are to start.
1: I think a lot of it boils down to the relationship, uh, really, between Fanny Bryce and Nick Arnstein. Um, I like both of them as characters quite a bit. I like the romance they have. Um, it's it's not that his gambling issue is a surprise to us. I mean, when he comes on, we know right away that he's pretty much this, this gambler. And that's what he calls, that's his job. He's a gambler. Yeah. I love how he, he defines his gambling addiction as his job. Even though sometimes when he's talking about his gambling addiction, he's clearly just like an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur and he's like, you know, getting money and putting it into the right businesses to make money. So yeah, like, like what's oh, okay. he what's he
0: doing in Oklahoma that is illicit somehow? It feels like that should be a crime, um, but yeah, but it, it's clearly not. And that that ends up being part of of the story of his kind of failure is that he he ends up turning to crime. As a result of his lack of success, legitimately, but it feels like it shouldn't be legit somehow.
1: Yeah, and obviously they they took some liberties with the real story, but uh, my my issues with this particular um, iteration of the the story of Fanny and Nick is that uh, Fanny's kind of arc of, over the course of the story, like, I like her rise in the world of Ziegfeld. I, I think that's enjoyable. It's not enough to really sustain the story, and so they kind of throw in this relationship she has with Arnstein, and, um, and I feel... Felt like it just it, the story kind of deflated a little bit when it really ended up focusing on the struggles of their relationship as she kind of continues her her rise to fame and he struggles to find his place and because of his pride apparently is too proud to um, to you know take her help and has to get himself deeper and deeper into into debt through his gambling issues and the way that that story just kind of unfolded it just kind of left me a little like eh, okay it wasn't as exciting as i was hoping it would have been when when i first started the film um but you know i you know i don't know i I don't know if the real story would have been any better but i just I, i struggled with that in that element of this story
0: I think there's a certain sort of ironic self-awareness of the film and particularly of Fanny's character. Like she tells the audience why I have trouble with this movie, right? She's she's sitting at the at the table and she's, you know, after Ziegfeld calls and she says, oh my gosh, it's happening too fast. It's happening too fast. It's too much success. I haven't struggled enough. And that, I think, is the problem with her individual arc. Like it's built on the the jokes it's built on the fact that it's funny but we don't get any get to see enough of the struggle to make her success a reward and so the struggle comes in uh, thanks to this the the relationship story which never really seems to have any uh, sort of emotional weight to it, you know? Uh, it, first of all, they I know way before, as you already said, I know way before these characters do that there's a gambling problem here and they should be more concerned. And at the point when they do finally get concerned, they're not concerned enough and it comes way too late in the movie. Like, I'm i am already w- well beyond having been depressed for them and denial for them and I'm ready to resolve it. Like, I'm, I'm through. And... She seems to be able to read his mind through several elements of the film or several significant uh, beats in their relationship. When he comes home having lost the house and doesn't have to say it, and she recognizes, hey, this country house, we're going to have to let it go. Uh, Let's go look for an apartment in the city. That comes as a complete non-issue. In terms of both of their performances, like it's there is I, I get no sense that they that either of them are in any way moved at the fact that they're going to have to sell this beautiful house and that that is a representation of the ultimate loss. That is his career. That is his sort of his, you know, livelihood. And uh, I, I have a real problem with that. It, it is. There's there's just no there's no engine to this thing, and and so it ends up being built on on just moments and some excellent music, and uh and I just feel like uh it's it just needs a little bit more of a goose.
1: Yeah, it's it's as if they as they were structuring the story, they focused on some of the 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 issues that they shouldn't have, like they made some of the issues about her rise in the world of Ziegfeld and all the comedy on stage and all that, um, kind of the big moments and some of those little moments that would have been the stronger character moments to show us, um, they just kind of skip past and we just get little bits and pieces. And it it, it does seem to gloss over a lot of the elements of the uh, latter half of the film and really kind of the the rise and fall of their relationship which is so critical to the to how the story ends up unfolding in that last uh, act and it it yeah it just it deflates and it just uh, it, it's frustrating because I felt like there's an interesting story here but we're not necessarily getting all of that interesting story.
0: I, I have to compare it to La Vie en Rose, right? Which which is this movie that that has buried inside of it an, an interesting story that is anchored by fantastic mu- music and an epic performance by its central character that is ultimately a disappointment of a film. And that's kind of what I felt uh, about Funny Girl because I really enjoyed Barbra Streisand in this film. I enjoyed watching her on screen. I think she actually did some things in, in terms of her performance and the way she aged over the uh, uh, several years um, that that I think were very compelling, and uh, obviously the music was w- wonderful to my ear, and uh, it, it was really neat to watch her perform these uh, these classic songs and some new ones for the film. Um, so I, I just don't feel like that performance to me was enough to uh, enough of a buoy to the rest of the film. Um, How do you feel about about Babs?
1: Oh, I I mean it's clear. Watching this, why she became a star, um, whether it's the singing or on stage or on screen uh, or behind the camera or wherever she is. I mean, mm-hmm. she's just incredibly talented. And watching her here, I mean, she she handles the drama really well. She understands the the powerful little moments. She also understands the comedy. And, and we've talked about that before with What's Up, Doc. Mm-hmm. She's just a really funny lady. And she understands... You see how I threw that in? She's a funny lady. I uh, did.
0: I got that. that I, was yeah, nice. I know. handy.
1: So <laughs> she understands the uh, the comedy. She understands the big picture, and I, I feel like. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a, uh, a very big benefit to um, the story to have her involved because she carries so much weight and she brings so much to um, to all the moments here that even though the story uh, in the end becomes fairly lackluster and kind of falls into just kind of a little more of just melodrama because a lot of the the stronger elements aren't there. It still ends up being a very interesting watch because she has so much strength on screen.
0: Yeah, that that's what what allows me to get through it. Uh, I the, on Nick, Nick's part, I, I th- part of the thing I struggle with when you look at his role in the overall arc of their relationship and the arc of the film. I struggle that he comes in early, but not enough to care, and we don't get enough of him to to really get to know him and feel for his character until too late in the movie. And I I don't know if uh, I, I don't know if that's a result of them taking too many liberties with the the you know true story, but as long as they're making taking those liberties, you know, why not give us a guy that that we get to know in a a little bit more of a significant way earlier so we can w- we get a sense of of his you know, his direction. Um because I think part of the challenge that I have with this film is, again, that it feels like two movies, uh, that there are two discrete stories or two parts of her life that we're, we're trying to integrate that, that don't always go well together.
1: So here's a question for you. And I, I, I'm just curious, and I don't know if either of us will really have an answer to this. Um, so the real relationship between Fanny Bryce and uh, Nick Arnstein um she pretty much knew he was kind of a criminal um before they even got married. Um before they got married, he had served for 14 months uh in Sing Sing for doing some wiretapping. Um and then uh, and she waited for him through all of that. And then afterward, um you know the the story the movie sets up this idea that, you know, he go falls into crime because he's too prideful and he to to live off her money and this whole business deal that he sets up for her. But in reality, he had been sponging off of her before their marriage. And eventually, he was, I guess, named as a member of a gang that stole $5 million worth of Wall Street securities. He doesn't turn himself in like he does in the movie. Um, he goes into hiding. And then when he does finally surrender, he doesn't plead guilty. He fights the charges, which, which hits Fanny Bryce's finances. It's, it's a lot of interesting heavy drama stuff with kind of the, this, this criminal relationship that she ends up uh, kind of becoming involved uh, yeah. in subsidizing um, in many ways. Yeah. So would that have made a more interesting film or does that take away, does it end up diminishing kind of what we get out of funny girl and the whole concept of this is the story of Fanny Bryce and kind of her, uh, her place in the Ziegfeld Follies, um, uh, Rise to fame.
0: But, but what I'm hearing from you, I think the implication of that very question is, is that part of the story enough to sustain it? Uh, to sustain an interesting film and I'm not entirely sure that it is uh, or or that they were able to commit to it quite enough and would we be having a conversation that goes something like wow uh, they sure did uh, liven up the life of Fanny Bryce I sure wish they had given us a little bit more of the truth around Nick Arnstein like that's the uh, you know that's that's where the real meat comes in had they given us more of just you know the rise of her that that might have been a a sin of omission and so I, I I don't know. I I I really struggle with it because it's that relationship stuff that I think dramatically would have been more interesting. uh, But we also really need to see her perform.
1: Yeah. And I, I felt like like we said earlier, it just makes for an end product that is memorable because of the music, unfortunately not because of the story itself.
0: Um, there are, you know, it's told mostly through flashback. Well, I should say it is told exclusively through flashback. Right? We have a very brief moment uh, or, or scene where she is exploring the theater in the very beginning, uh, the New Amsterdam Theater, and then it, we come back at the end of the film and and learn that in fact she's gone to the theater and to see, you know, Ziegfeld and and uh, that she's waiting for her uh, husband to come out of prison and. Uh, how does the the act of bookending the film as a as a, a flashback like this hit you?
1: I was questioning the the need for it. Um, I didn't have an issue with it, but when it started, and you know, right out of the gate, we get okay. We already see Ziegfeld Follies. We see Fanny Bryce's name up in lights on the on the marquee. As she walks in, so we know that this is later in her life when she's in a place where she's a huge success. Before she kind of sits in this in this dark theater, and the whole thing kind of starts uh, from when she's a kid. I don't know. It was one of those moments where I was like, "Hmm, I don't know if that's really benefiting us. Like, what what is the value of starting there as opposed to just kind of kicking it off?" with the uh, chronological bit when she's a young girl and she's having ambitions of being in theater.
0: Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I I don't know. I mean, there is the, the scene, the thing that I love about the scene that we open with is that it is it, you know for for her and for those in the theater it's a it's a prayer scene right it's a silent sort of vigil that she's allowed to have alone walking through uh, the theater we get the hello gorgeous where she's looking at herself in the mirror these are kind of iconic moments you know for for those who uh, you know have such experience in the theater and and I like that I like the value of that could they have given us a scene like that uh, you know at a different point in the film I don't know there's something about the uh, you know selling us her as the the sort of aged star and aged star which is kind of silly because she's not that much older than when the film started like if she was if it was 20 years later maybe that would be different but he's only been in jail for you know 18 months uh, so you know it's not like she's seeing him after two decades so
1: um, well I mean but it's I mean we jump back to before she even becomes a star so obviously and, I, and I, you know it was like a year before or between the first time she saw Nick and the second time. So, I mean, it's it's definitely a number of years, but, yeah, but it's we're not like, talking what, about five, five 10, years. Or right. We're talking yeah, about yeah.
0: Yeah, maybe, maybe five, five years at the,
1: yeah. at the outset. So right.
0: I, I feel like that's not that's not enough to give her the air of matron. Right. And that's what that's what I sort of expect with the leopard skin and the hat, like the way they dress her in that sequence makes it appear that she's much, much older than she than she actually would be. Uh, And so, yeah, I struggle a little bit with that. I I don't necessarily think that there was a that there was a need to it. I think they probably could have given us a linear film all the way around um, that that actually, you know, served us felt felt a little bit overdone.
1: I agree. I mean, I, I like what you said. It's kind of like this this prayer moment in the theater. Uh, it's the, kind of the darkness uh, and it's a time for reflection as she is thinking about her relationship with Nick. Uh, and it leads us to this point. But yes, at the same time, I'm like, I, I felt like it could have just been completely chronological and we really wouldn't have uh, it wouldn't have changed that much Uh,
0: thank goodness for boob jokes right wow is that going to be a thing for every movie we do here from the 60s musicals
1: I I tell you other than Mary Poppins it seemed like quite a common thing yeah yeah yeah, I'm very curious now to go back and look at some more but uh, you know I don't recall any in Sound of Music or Oliver but (laughs) maybe I miss them
0: (laughs) Uh, the production design was really uh, was w- w- at at times interesting and at times sort of pedestrian. Um, I love any time we're in the theater. I love the the space of being inside the theater. Sometimes it was a theater that seemed to be over a mat. I'm not sure what was going on with that. Anytime we had uh, we were up behind the, the cast looking out over the empty theater, it it felt like something was screened uh, and it looked very strange to me even though other sequences were clearly not like other sequences allowed us to go from the stage to in, into the house. Uh, I'm not sure what that, what was up with that. The same thing with like Henry street, you know, we have their house and their neighborhood looks like I'm on the set of Sesame street.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, it was a strange blend within the film. Um, I, I don't know if it bothered me too much, but I just felt I could really feel it. Like when we were on Henry street and, anytime i mean man it just felt like this is clearly a movie set but then all of a sudden we have uh the don't rain on my parade sequence which um you know they're in the train station and then she's running and she's buying a ticket cuz she's leaving the theater and she's going to follow her passion and, and follow nick um and she you know runs through the runs to the boat docks and she hops on a tugboat and all this sort of stuff it just that is like really incredible location shooting. Um, and so it was this it was kind of a strange blend because when when we're in some of the sets, they look like incredibly like sets, uh, which it just it wasn't a good balance for my taste.
0: Yeah, boy, that parade, the entire parade montage was fantastic. Like the the locations, oh, yeah. right? Running through all of the the boat warehouses. I mean, it just looked really really cool. The way they used some of these sequences was fantastic. The the camera the camera would go from being just sort of interesting if you're paying attention to it right the way they use it the way they celebrate sort of the theater uh to downright stunning uh the the reign of my parade sequence in particular that helicopter shot is amazing for
1: 1969
0: oh. w- what was that
1: yeah 67 it it it's yeah it's a helicopter shot from far distant looking at the tugboat flies all the way down to get kind of a a a medium close shot of um fanny bryce as she's continuing to sing her don't rain on my parade song uh and then she finishes it and then the helicopter you know flies back up revealing the kind of the wide shot again i mean it's it just blew me away when i saw that it was so steady so steady
0: uh, it's it was fantastic, and same thing in the theater during the ballet sequence, her opening night ballet sequence, the Swan Lake, uh, uh, Swan Lake spoof, I guess. Um, the The actual ballet sequence, the camera is doing all kinds of bananas off axis uh, flyovers, which I found. Really disorienting, like are, are they trying to indicate somebody is uh, somehow inebriated? Um, I, I don't know, but it was it was really crazy to look at. And, and I think it actually a very good way. I think it was very effective. I'm just trying to figure out who are they trying to communicate with here?
1: Well, in my my sense, because I, I i was totally pulled in by that as well. Just the the craziness of how we fly in over the ballet dancers, and then yeah, it keeps giving us these these Dutch angles or these moves into these Dutch angles. And I was feeling like it was just this disorientation because this is the show that Nick misses because he's he's decided to stay and and gamble his money away because he feels like this is the night. And so I was like, okay. So are we? I, I felt like okay, maybe we're disoriented. because this is her big opening night and things are just not lining up as they should. And I don't know if that's exactly what they're saying, but that's how I felt.
0: It's how I felt, too. It was um, it was interesting to me that they were using these sorts of camera techniques to communicate that sort of emotion when they weren't showing us Nick. Right. I mean, they were showing us the part of that experience That was actually going quite well. It's not like they were making a mistake on stage. It's not like they were just sort of buffooning their way across because she was distracted, which is what I normally would have experienced or expected to experience from this sort of camera technique. And since Nick was the one that was clearly in trouble, I I find it a little bit hard to rationalize, even though I want to. And I feel like that's kind of the intention. uh, I find it hard to rationalize, you know, why he wasn't on screen.
1: Yeah, I agree. Or or even getting some shots of Fanny's face as she's like looking in the crowd, because we already saw yeah. the, the moment, you know, at the at the intermission when she's like, where is he? Where is he? He's not here. I don't see him. I looked out there and, and she's kind of having that panic attack. And uh, and, and so we, we already get that sense. But we don't get any shots during that show then of her looking out and seeing the empty seat or anything like that that give us a sense right. of this is why we're shooting it this way.
0: Right. I think that's I think that's missing. I think that's definitely missing.
1: I you know, I, I felt it was interesting that this film uh it, it really did kind of um I mean, at the time there was this stereotype that Jewish women were um were dependent on their men. Um and this film and Barbara Streisand in the role shows us this this confident uh, and funny Jewish woman who's intelligent, who um, knows how to pursue her career, um, and she, uh, you know, she is uh, kind of is this 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 uh, sense that she has uh, a way to make things for herself, and it really kind of flips the stereotypes where. Her man is really kind of dependent on her, and it's reversing those gender roles, and it's it's giving us a sense of uh, a strong woman at the time, which was great, and also a strong uh, Jewish woman, which I think at the time was probably something that – uh i some people definitely appreciate it because it it gives you this character that normally wouldn't have been that and here she is doing it in a really great way and she's really funny too so i i felt like there was a lot going on with this role that people could appreciate at the time
0: and you know th- this is a really interesting thing given that context that the the film i think or the the uh, the stage uh, production the musical actually i think ends originally ended with a reprise of rain on my parade and and uh, the movie they actually went with a song that was not in the musical to end the uh, to end the movie and that was my man which was a classic song that was was uh, I, I think as I understand it closely associated with Fanny Bryce the the real Fanny Bryce and my man it, it you know, tells the story of her love, uh, in what is ultimately, I think, kind of a stereotypical fashion. Um, so here we have this entire movie that is a um, a, a statement of the you know counter stereotype of her actually taking control and suggesting things out of you know where she shouldn't and uh you know taking action where normally she would be subservient and then the final statement of the film is one of deep sadness as she celebrates with this song my man uh what do you think of that final that final nod uh
1: i didn't like it um I felt like it uh, went back to uh, diminishing her role, and it's like all she could think about was her man at this point. And I'm just like, you know, I I felt like it, it took away some of the strength that I liked in Fanny that we had seen up to this point. Um, I understand why they went with it. I mean, obviously... It shows that, that struggle that she has, that love she has for Nick and how they both had to kind of make this tough choice of saying, you know what, it's our this relationship is not going to work and we need to end it, even though there still is a strong love there. I can certainly appreciate that, but I just felt like it was moving in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, I struggle with it because I actually think this, the presentation of the song is quite nice and the sentiment of the song, having that be a Fanny Bryce... Song is really quite nice, but I'm I'm kind of with you. Like it 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 sort of again, it's another element that goes to deflate uh, the the story that they'd already sort of set up with Fanny Bryce, and I I struggle with that a little bit. I didn't I uh, even as much as I actually like it, and and it is a very modern uh, present visual presentation, right? It's it's told on on set on a black set with uh, I think there were some mirrors that are almost immediately cropped out. Uh, told mostly in a single long shot uh, of her and it is also a little bit disorienting because you get a feeling at, at times like, um, like she is moving and the camera is staying on her and sort of pivoting around her but uh, just slightly off access, so uh, off access, so it feels like there's there's some sort of parallax going on, uh, and and I'm not sure if there is, but it, it is also sort of disorienting in that way visually too. So I I thought it was I thought it was kind of fascinating.
1: I just appreciated it because it had a sense of. Um, emotional focus with mm-hmm. her by having pretty much everything in the screen black except for you know a couple color splotches i i think the mirrors that you're likely talking about um and and her all who also is dressed in black and so you just get you know this this image of her as kind of disappearing into the darkness as she sings the song and finishes it. And then as she finishes, she kind of, you know, throws her head back and the front lights are gone and you just get this, this shadowy little silhouette of all that's left of her. And I thought it was a really interesting imagery. And I appreciated what Wyler was doing there, even if I still disagree with it. You know, I, I disagree that that's not what we want to be saying about Fanny at the end of the film here. Yeah. Um, but it was visually stunning.
0: The transition from stage to screen, I think, was an interesting one. It comes off of a controversial biography that
1: had been uh, commissioned by Ray Stark, and now Ray was in the family. Right, exactly. He had married Frances, um, the daughter that we see uh, briefly in the film here. Um, he uh, had married her, and um, yeah, and so he kind of wanted to tell this story of his mother-in-law he had a real struggle getting it written he didn't like the initial uh initial draft
0: then went and tried to have it commissioned into a screenplay had 10 writers hands uh on this material and then back to stage and then uh where it it finally launched in 64 his effort to tell the story was uh, you know it was long and noble there were a, also a long list of actors before Streisand Mary Martin was involved Anne Bancroft Dorothy Fields, Edie Gourmet Carol Burnett Carol Burnett came is is one of the actresses that came back and said you know you need a Jewish uh, you need a Jewish woman in this role and uh, and so you know once uh, once they found Barbara Streisand she was really locked in in for this role and and that actually is ultimately what locked her into uh to the role in the film uh in spite of Columbia executives trying to get Shirley MacLaine in that role uh, uh, apparently it was Stark who threatened to can the production not allow the production to go forward if it wasn't Streisand in the lead so uh ultimately i think she just she is inseparable from the character of Fanny Bryce and and uh, glad to see that that her work Uh, on stage locked her into the work on film absolutely deep sea dive the confrontation with nick uh this is after nick skips out on the psychotic ballet performance uh so that he can play poker and uh ultimately not do very well this is right about uh, an hour and 59 minutes uh hour 59 to 202 uh in this scene what do you think uh, why is this scene an important one for us to talk
1: about I This is a just a, a, a really solid scene that gives so much meat to um, what the story is really about, which is the relationship between Fanny and Nick and why uh, they're having a struggling relationship when it comes to his gambling and kind of the way that he views their relationship. I think a lot comes out in this particular scene about how, uh, you know, her... Her premiere really shouldn't be any more important than his success at a poker game, the way that he sees it, which, uh, you know, I I think said a lot about who he is and and his beliefs in this world of gambling that he's uh, in which he is so deep.
0: Yeah, I I like this scene because it is it gives us such a clear sense of visibility of what these characters want. Right. I mean, we and, and that is what makes the great drama of the scene when we have these two characters who want such different things. In the immediate in order to get to a, a long-term sense of satisfaction and we we know as the audience that they're never going to get there that there is no way that the drama is going to allow them to get there he wants to be recognized he wants to be uh, a provider and he uh, wants her to understand that this is the only way he can do it and she wants him to be healthy she wants him to be uh, you know a part of the relationship with her and she wants to be able to provide in a way that he can't understand uh, and so it is a battle of egos and a a battle of wills and uh, ultimately a battle of of you know deep disappointment and sadness and i i think it's um it, it's a wonderful uh, opportunity for her to really shine um uh, you know and i i feel like she's been doing so bouncing around so many sort of different com- comedic moments in the film that i think she's this this scene is a real standout for the kind of drama that i had hoped would be even more robust throughout the rest of the film
1: Well, and also, I think this scene shows us why we, you know, in general, people love Omar Sharif so much. I mean, he he is a a fantastic actor. I mean, he's he's uh, got a just a wonderful screen presence. He's uh, easy on the eyes. He is uh, kind of just that just that. A uh, smoldering romantic leading man. I mean, when he's singing "You are woman, I am man, let's kiss," it's like, okay, let's let's do it, you know. And, well, and, and you know, but, as a
0: point, Andy, too, this is what's interesting. But the the original Broadway cast, it was not, uh, it was not the sort of uh, vaguely European character. And I think the way Omar Sharif plays the mysterious European uh, industrialist is even better
1: uh, for the for the story. Oh, absolutely! No, I think he he just worked so well in the role, and uh, and this scene, it's like this gives you that sense of finally we're getting some of the 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 frustration that has been kind of subtext up to this point about some of the the success that she's having and the the struggles that he's having. It's all coming to a head, and it's coming out as uh, as they really kind of have this fight, and you know, he's just like you know, uh, you know, I'm. Um, your stuff isn't as important. Um, my my stuff is just as important. And and he kind of storms off and leaves her there. It's it's like a really powerful scene. It's like Omar Sharif is a great actor and he brings a lot to the table here. So it's great seeing uh, the two of them on screen in this very confrontational moment. We talked about Weiler getting uh, working uh, uh, or having to work with, I guess, a little
0: bit uh, with Streisand uh, as a result of Ray stark's uh, insistence uh what else do we know about her in this role
1: well uh yeah she had uh been on broadway and What's funny about uh, her coming to this role is that that um, Wyler, you know, she she I mean, we've heard so many stories about Barbara Streisand and kind of how how pushy she can be and how she's she wants what she wants and she makes everybody work to get it. But she really wanted to be involved. I mean, this was her first feature film. And so she asked a lot of questions. And, you know, uh, William Wyler has this this joke that he said, he says, oh, things were ironed out when she discovered some of us knew what we were doing. Um <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that kind of goes to the point of uh, you know she 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 feels like she needs to push her way in and, and make things work the way that she sees it and she certainly did in this film even though it was her first you know she well, I mean, there she were, was like uh,
0: 25, 26 years old right I mean she yeah, was oh yeah. in so many ways the character she was playing
1: yeah she she really was the one who would say to Ziegfeld um I I don't think I should be in that act yeah like she is that one who would make that sort of stuff happen. And, um, but what's funny is like, you know, she didn't even know who Wyler was when he was brought on to do this. And, and, apparently when they said that she, or that he had won an Academy award for uh, directing Ben-Hur, she said, chariots, how is he with people like women? Is he any good with actresses? Not even realizing that he had directed, uh, Audrey Hepburn in Roman holiday. So she, (laughs) she didn't have a good sense of all of that, which is very funny, but you know, Wyler did have a great time working with her. And I guess as a joke at the end at the at the wrap party or something, he gave her her own uh, bullhorn uh, with like director on it because she apparently was was so bossy and really pushed to get things done the way that she wanted to. So I, I think that uh, says a lot about her and and his and their working relationship, which I thought I think was a good one.
0: Uh, She uh, was married at the time to that, uh, I think, what we know as uh, that 1960s cinema hunk, Elliot Gould. Oh, the silent partner himself. Right, right. Yes, indeed. Uh, But it did not go well, thanks to the
1: dastardly Omar (laughs) Sharif also playing (laughs) to part. Yeah, they had an affair uh, during the making of this. And I guess um, a, a photo got out of them kissing. And, uh, you know, he uh, he is has Egyptian blood, and there was a six-day war that was uh, very uh, prominent at the time of this. And I guess the Egyptian press began a campaign to get his citizenship revoked over the images of the kiss. The headline in the Egyptian newspaper said, Omar kisses Barbara, Egypt angry. <laughs> And uh, they just kind of uh, laughed it off. And I guess Streisand said, Egypt angry, you should hear what my Aunt Sarah said. Which <laughs> sounds sounds just like her. Just like her. So, uh, very funny. Um, and I guess, you know, their relationship was uh, ending as they were ending the, the film. And when she was singing My Man, uh, Wyler, I think smartly, had Omar there um, just to to kind of heighten her emotion as she sang that song um, because it ended up you know, representing a lot more in context of, yeah. of how she was delivering it.
0: He was not yeah. also not the first uh, considered for the role.
1: Yeah, Frank Sinatra uh, was actually uh, considered uh, for the role of uh, Arnstein, but I guess uh, Streisand, as much as she respected him as a talent, disliked him personally, which I thought was interesting. So he was uh, nixed, and uh, then they had a few other people. Some other names uh, fly by like Cary Grant, Marlon Brandon, Gregory Peck, Sean Connery, uh, and uh, James Garner and stuff. and uh, But yeah, it all ended up falling to the fantastic Omar Sharif.
0: Yeah, all of those characters would have been, uh, all of those actors would have been much truer to the stage uh, performance, right, in terms of the the adaptation, right? Everybody yeah, uh, right. in that list, they're just the the strong sort of, I, I guess Sean Connery is probably not, the, the, everybody but Sean Connery is that sort of strong American type, you know, and, yeah, right, and, right. Uh, and uh, I think Sharif just adds so much uh, texture that, and culture uh, that was missing. Uh, from the the stage performance, I think it's great. Uh, we, yeah, there's a mystique about him. Yeah, so. yeah, that's the that's the stuff. Uh, Harry mm-hmm. Stradling, senior, uh, is behind the camera.
1: Yeah, he had uh, he had done a lot, and uh, he had 13 Oscar nominations in his career. Um, and this was right toward the end of his career. The last four pictures he uh, made uh, starred Barbara Streisand. This is the first of those four. And the last of those four was the Owl and the Pussycat in 1970, on which he died during production, sadly, and they had to replace him. Um, So, uh, but yeah, he ended up, uh, you know, really working well with her and... You know, going back to specifically to our scene, what I find so fascinating—the way that he and William Wyler work on this—is just again the efficiency. I mean, this is a very simple scene. It's about this confrontation between husband and wife, as uh, as you know, she's upset at him, and then he ends up taking it out on her. But all told, over the course of this, you know, three-minute scene, there's only three shots in the whole thing. The first of which is just an, just a really short close-up of her as she's, uh, you know, leaning back in the dark, um, and then she hears him coming in, and then we cut to a wide shot that la- lasts most of it until we cut to kind of a second wide shot at a different angle of the two of them as they finish their fight. And it was just, it's so efficient and so clean. The camera movement is very limited. Oh, just kind of just little movements to keep cameras in frame. The only time we get a real, uh, a real movement that's not necessarily motivated by anything is at the very end of the scene. When, uh, after he storms out, the camera just trucks in right up to her as she's, as she wipes a tear away. And she's just kind of, uh, you know, looking very frustrated Um, it's, it's just, I I felt it was just so incredibly clean and efficient. It just, I was so impressed with what Stradling and Weiler did here with uh, the way they constructed the scene
0: not as excited about the um, the production design, uh, just in terms of its uh, innovation. It's a set, Gene Callahan behind the production design. Uh, I, I don't necessarily know that that's a bad thing in this particular scene, because we're so focused on these two characters. And one of the elements that I think really works well is just allowing such incredible depth, where we get to see Omar back by the door, and her on the couch as we're shot from behind the couch. That I, I think those scenes uh, or, or give us a fantastic sort of structure uh, in the frame. And uh, so, so I don't think the demands are all that high of this particular scene.
1: Maybe not of this particular scene, but it is certainly something that uh, does pop up in other scenes throughout.
0: Julie Stein uh, is uh, a, a man deeply, deeply involved in the music lyrics by Bob Merrill. Julie Stein is man he can crank out uh, musical theater.
1: This has a lot of songs that um, I knew, but I didn't know where they came from. Yeah, so um, it 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 works really well. Um, I mean, you know, and, and the other songs that that uh, that he's known for, things like "Diamonds Are Girl Girl's Best Friend," that's uh, that's one of the big ones. Um, uh, just a lot of stuff from uh, musicals and uh, theater. Uh, you know, Gypsy and. Um. What else? Anchors away and uh, gentlemen prefer, yeah. prefer prefer blondes. Three coins in the fountain. Uh, just a wide variety of of uh, projects and uh, the songs here. Um, I, I think really are quite good. And there's no song in this particular scene. But um, but still, the songs I think really stand out as some as some great ones here.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, the guy he—I don't know what the final total was, but over—I uh, uh, you know, was watching an interview with him and Hugh Downs of all. People and this was in the early seventies, and at that point he'd written for over fourteen hundred songs in fifty years. I, I didn't. You, you can go to his website, which is is still fairly well maintained, the official Julie Stein website, and uh, and, and see list of of all of his songs, and it is a significant. <laughs> Significant list, all alphabetical. Uh, you know the way he talks about it. He's, he, you know, he says I'm, I'm writing music right now. I'm writing music while I'm talking to you. I'm writing music all the time. It's a job. You sit down and you do your job. And and I really like his his sort of perspective on that. You know uh, that that as a creative uh, a person in the creative arts, like there, there's no writer's block. It's, you might turn out crap every now and again, but there's no writer's block. Uh, you just keep writing. And uh, and as a result, he he is churned. Out an absolutely legendary catalog. Uh, the comparison, I think, between Stein and Mozart is really uncanny. I mean, he was a prodigy. He was playing with symphonies, uh, you know, while I was as, as a ten-year-old. Uh, and uh, you know, he he says that he was born, uh, you know, too too late. <laughs> that, uh, um, you know, that the kids his age didn't understand the kind of music that he was playing. Uh, you know, they were all into the pop music. But, man, he was born in 1905. Uh, and so by the time he hit 20 years old, it's 1925, and he is, uh, he's, he's hitting his stride as a musician. He's, he is, um, uh, he's just an uncanny composer. He's just wonderful.
1: Have you ever seen the musical version of this? Are you familiar with the songs? I I have not seen
0: the musical, but I am, I am uh, familiar with the songs and uh, there are, it is a different kind of, of vibe. And, I hadn't made a connection between the two until I, I read this this thing that uh, caught our eye uh, on Stein's opinion of the film and what in, what sort of uh, uh, the the studio was asking of him, you know, to cut music and add music and reorchestrate a lot of the music and and if you listen to the songs that actually make uh, make the film and were originally in the musical you can hear it there is a, a sense of of shooting for uh, much more of a pop music vibe and uh, and not so much as the of the classic sort of 1920s uh 1920s orchestration and so i think it's a really interesting uh, it, it's an interesting comparison he didn't like the the film as well
1: yeah but uh it's one of those things it's like well I, you know i didn't like it but i guess it's the best Best uh, mess that they've made of my work.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. That was a really funny thing. This is uh, I, I love the whole quote. Right? They they didn't want to go with success. It was this old fashioned MGM Hollywood way of doing a musical. They always change things to their way of vision, and they are always do it wrong. Of all of my musicals, they screwed up. Funny Girl came out the best, which I love. I I think that's a that's such a great quote, and it sounds like such an auteur kind of position on on the work. So yeah. Uh, but he's a pragmatist, man. The guy just churned out turned out work so um this is just a drop in the bucket for him yeah no kidding the script we we haven't actually mentioned the script uh, uh it was written by isabel lennart uh, based on her uh um, musical play
1: yeah musical play like you mentioned she was one of the the people who i believe had actually written a screenplay for just a straight drama for ray stark that was just called my man um, before it ended up getting uh, revisioned into the uh, the musical version. So she wrote the musical version and then adapted it into the screenplay here.
0: What's interesting about that, the uh, the musical version was also uh, way, way too long. And over the course of 17 previews before it opened on Broadway, they ended up cutting uh, and cutting and cutting and cutting and, and ended up having to... Um, uh, to, just to get it down to the sort of two-and-a-half-hour running time that the stage uh, play had. So I think they really struggled telling this whole story. At least that's a, that's a sign to me that that they really struggled telling this whole sort of complete story of Fannie Bryce. Uh, it, it pretty much doesn't matter what media. Yeah. Uh, direction by William Wyler. We mentioned William Wyler. I, I find it amazing that uh, William Wyler, who is, I, I think, a fantastic director – uh, his name comes up after names like Mike Nichols and George Roy Hill and Gene Kelly. What? Sidney Lumet? What? <laughs> That's <Right.
1: laughs> <laughs> uh, a crazy list of names that they'd considered for uh, directing this. And then, like you said, then Sidney Lumet ends up directing it or uh, signing on to direct it. And then uh, just the time that he spent the several weeks working with Ray Stark and Barbara Streisand, he's just like, nope, I can't do this. Uh, he, uh, left the picture and that's when Weiler finally was signed on. It took that long to actually get him on board. So, um, uh, but you know, I'm glad he did. Uh, this is a guy who's the most nominated director in Academy Awards history. He had 12 nominations. He won three times for Ben Hur, the best years of our lives and Mrs. Miniver. And he's tied with Frank Capra and just behind John Ford, who won four Oscars. Um, he's also the only director in Academy Awards history to direct three best picture winning films of the three, which he also coincidentally won Best Director for. And he directed more best Picture nominees than anyone else. He also has the distinction of having directed more actors to Oscar nominated performances than any other director in history. It's a total of thirty six, wow. and so, 14 of them went on to win Oscars which is also a record so he uh he's a guy who clearly knows how to work with good stories and uh direct actors to great performances
0: there is a there is a William Wyler series buried in there for us Andy I think there is I think there there is I think there should be uh any other cast and crew that you want to talk about before we uh can we wrap it up?
1: Um Kay Medford. Uh she plays um Mom. She's uh Mrs. Bryce. She is um uh, she was on the stage also. Uh, the two people who came from the stage to to the film were Barbara Streisand and Kay Medford. And, uh, and you know, I think that she's fine here. I I don't really have any issues with any of the other performances. I don't think any of them are that big or grand or great. Um, Anne Francis as Georgia James, Walter pigeon as, as Florence Ziegfeld, um, I, but I think what happens is a movie like this with such a big performance by its leading lady that some of the other roles kind of get diminished. In fact, some people like Anne Francis came out and said, you know, I was in a lot more scenes, but by the time they edited it down, a lot of my stuff was cut out. And uh, she was very disappointed in the final in the final product.
0: Uh, we, we do have uh, Walter Pigeon.
1: Interestingly, he was in Forbidden Planet with Anne Francis, so they had worked together before this. You know, an interesting uh, uh, person that does pop up in the film, although I I would uh, be hard-pressed to point her out, Um, is Sherry Lansing, who um, you wouldn't think of as an actress, per se, but you certainly would uh, think of her as somebody involved in film because, you know, she had gone on uh, working behind the scenes. She had become the vice president of production over at Columbia. She was president at 20th Century Fox. She was president of Paramount. Uh, Definitely a name in the film industry. Um, But before kind of all of that, she was doing little acting bits here and there, and she was the uncredited girlfriend. I don't know whose girlfriend, but she was an uncredited girlfriend in this film which I just think is hilarious. So
0: People, Andy, uh, did you catch that uh, the interesting thing about People that I thought was such a funny thing? Because it's become such an iconic song for Streisand over the years uh, that uh, in the the original uh, stage production, uh, director Kanan, uh, they uh, wanted to actually cut it uh, and uh, because he, he didn't like it, didn't think it fit the character. And, and there was some controversy, uh, you know, largely inspired because she had already recorded a single uh, for it. And um, uh, the audience loved it. And, and to the point where, you know, it was, they would stand up and applaud the moment it, it played in the opening, um, uh, the introduction of the show. So uh, they ended up keeping it. It became such a legacy tune for her. I think it's funny that it, it nearly. Uh, It was nearly cut from the show.
1: That would have been crazy. Yeah. Because, yeah, as soon as it came on, it was like that iconic song. It's like, oh, here it is. Yep. Yep. And it's funny, because that song and Don't Rain on My Parade are two songs that, to me, seem like such iconic Barbara Streisand songs that she, you know, it's something that she probably sings every time she has a show yeah. are both from this film. You
0: know, it's, I think that one, a lot of these songs are. What's really interesting is I'm the Greatest Star is another one that's really catchy, but only for like two lines at a time because it it's such a staccato, sort of broken narrative song that, yeah. uh, but uh, that one, uh, the uh, people, uh, Don't Rain on My Parade, huge. Uh, and, and then Funny Girl, my goodness, Funny Girl is such a, a wonderful. Song uh, that, that I think is, it, these are all like played out of context of the musical. Again, what we talked about earlier, it just cements this, the, the fact that the music was just absolutely outshines the, the story. Yeah. Um, anyhow, how to do an award season.
1: Uh this was a, a successful film. Um it it had 8 wins, 16 other nominations. Um most of the wins were for Barbara Streisand. At the Oscars it had 8 nominations. Uh best actress Barbara Streisand uh she won. This is this is kind of that interesting moment in Oscar history because it was an actual tie that happened. Uh, Barbara Streisand tied with Katherine Hepburn uh who uh, won for The Lion in Winter. So the two of them actually both won the Best Actress Award, which is, I, I think, it might be the only time in Oscar history that that's happened. Um, but Barbara became the 13th actor to win an Oscar under Weiler's direction. And, uh, and uh, true to form uh, with in context of the film, when she is handed her statue, she looks at it and says, Hello, gorgeous. So it just was very fitting. Um, the movie was also nominated for Best Picture, which lost to Oliver. Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Kay Medford. She lost to Ruth Gordon in Rosemary's Baby. Best uh, Cinematography lost to Romeo and Juliet. Best Sound lost to Oliver. Best Film Editing lost to Bullet, something we've talked about on the show. Uh, Best Music, original song, the song Funny Girl, lost to The Thomas Crown Affair for the song The Windmills of Your Mind which is, um, it's kind of funny. Uh, it's a very uh, catchy song that sticks in your head. Uh, funny Girl, I didn't think stuck in my head as much as The Windmills of Your Mind did. The song, oddly, that I think sticks in my head more than either of those is Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yes, yes, on, I that <laughs> on that we agree. that we agree, yes. Uh, and then Best Musical Score of a Motion Picture Original or Adaptation, that also lost to Oliver. An interesting little other award that the film received, actually in 2009, from the Society of Camera Operators, they gave it an award for historical shot. It won for, which we talked about, that amazing shot of Barbara Streisand standing on the bow of the tugboat singing Don't Rain on My Parade, as you kind of fly down to her and then fly out. And apparently Streisand liked that shot so much uh, that she adapted it for the conclusion of her directorial debut yentl how to do uh, uh that we we do have a sequel w- weird sequel i haven't seen it well i obviously haven't i uh, it's funny because i knew that these two movies existed but uh i had no idea uh that it was even a sequel so uh but yeah she barbara streisand james Kahn, directed by herbert ross and this is about her subsequent uh, marriage and relationship that that she had with uh, another man funny lady 1975 weird And, and going back, uh, you know, from away from funny lady jumping back, uh, real quick to, uh, funny girl. Um, I thought this was really interesting that, uh, on the Motown label, they actually had Diana Ross and the Supremes release a studio album, a studio album, um, called. Diana Ross and the Supremes sing and perform Funny Girl, which is a oh. really long title for an album, but basically they covered the entire album, all the songs from Funny Girl. So, uh yeah, I thought that was a, an interesting little tie-in uh for this film. And I I don't know specifically why they chose to do it, but there it is and uh yeah, wow. that album I guess is out there.
0: Yeah. That's fantastic. I did not uh I did not get that that was what your note was talking about but now it's the only thing i can think about diana ross funny girl i can find I it no there idea. it is it's right there yeah diana ross and the supreme sing and perform funny girl expanded edition andy hey hey oh wow i want to hear now all. now i really want to listen to it yeah i'm gonna wa- that's where i'm going when we're done so let's wrap it up how, how to do it in the box office
1: William Wyler got a whopping $14.1 million to make his movie, which is $97.6 million in today's dollars. From the three films we've talked about in this series for which I could find budget information, this is the largest by more than double. Not sure what cost so much on this one because it didn't look that much more expensive, but them's the mysteries of Hollywood budgets. The movie opened September 18, 1968, opposite the psychological thriller and black comedy Pretty Poison, starring Anthony Perkins and Tuesday Weld. The movie went on to become the second highest grossing movie of the year, right behind 2001 A Space Odyssey. It made $58.7 million, or $406.4 million in today's dollars. That gives the movie an adjusted profit per finished minute of just over $2 million, which is great for such a long movie, raking in more than four times its budget. All told, it's a great film that stands as one of the great musicals, as a powerful debut for Streisand, and, sadly, as the last great film for Weiler. It's actually a second-to-last film, but it certainly is... I guess you could say the last one that really stands out. Hmm. Uh
0: you know it's it, it's I'm disappointed in how I feel about this movie. I wanted to you know watching it again, I wanted to love it more and because I feel so strongly about so many of the songs in this thing and uh it, it turns out I like uh, I I guess a lot of of uh, uh, well, I guess I say a lot but I guess I like you uh sort of
1: dissociate the story from from the music. It was it was an interesting experience. I'm glad I've seen it. Um, uh, You know, it's it's one that I am glad that I've seen because of some so many of those iconic songs that now I can place. Um, But yeah, in the end, the story uh, fell a little flat for me, even if I still enjoyed it as yeah. an experience uh, with that. Andy, I think we should rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash
0: the next reel to see our list of our favorite films in stack ranking order, just like we talk about on this show every single week. Uh, But if you want to just swipe over in your show notes, you can tap the word flick chart. That'll take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your own catalog. And let's see how it stacks
1: up to ours. First up, we have Funny Girl or Star Trek Beyond. Hmm. Star Trek for me. Yeah, Star Trek. Funny Girl or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I'm going to say Munchausen. I'm going to say Funny Girl. Okay, you got it. (laughs) That was an (laughs) easy win. Easy win. Funny Girl or Princess Mononoke. Princess Mononoke. Definitely. Yep. Definitely Mononoke yep. for me. Funny Girl or Die Hard 2? <laughs> die Hard 2. I'm going to say Die Hard 2. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Funny Girl or Kundun? Funny Girl. Yeah, I'll say Funny Girl. Funny Girl or... Or the oh, this one's for you, Pete. The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai. Buckaroo Bonsai. The you don't even need dimension. to fish. It's Buckaroo Bonsai. Click
0: submit. <laughs> Click submit, Andy, and back away from the
1: computer. You know, I'm a little torn, but I'll give you Buckaroo Bonsai because I know you Aww. love it so. Aww. And I'm sure there's a watermelon that's missing from Funny Girl somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> funny Girl or the Day of the Locust? Uh, definitely Funny Girl. I'm going with the Day of the Locust. You're a masochist. That is a movie that will stand out in my brain forever. <laughs>
0: yes, that says a it lot. Is
1: intense. I am picking All right,
0: it. Let's do it. Let's go to the. I don't know if it, at this point if it's worth it, but I'm going to the mat.
1: Let's do it. All right. Okay.
0: One, two, two three, three.
1: Paper, paper rock, 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 scissors, rock, scissors. Rock, Jeez, <laughs> that was frightening okay well funny girl took it <laughs> wow i don't even well know i have a little bit
0: stired. is that the, that may be the
1: longest we've done i feel like it was wow all right funny girl or village of the damned village of the damned i'm gonna say funny girl okay
0: i really I, i'm okay with that okay Um yeah
1: I mean, it's it's the songs. It's it's the big moments yeah. of Funny Girl that, for me, stand out. Okay. Um, and that's it. Uh, Funny Girl <laughs> is at 240 out of 340 on our flick chart. There it is.
0: All right. So how did it do on your personal chart? Uh,
1: this one, it, on our flick chart, it ended up at about 29%, which seems pretty low. Uh, my personal one, it ended up 1323 out of 3925, which is about 66%. Um, and uh, you know I, I felt like it was in the right spot i didn't feel like it was uh, a huge issue so uh, that's where it landed
0: on mine it ended up at 592 out of 1011 which is 41% which is low and uh, it's actually disappointingly low given how i feel about even just the music and so uh, that that says on slash the next reel i should be uh, i should be voting for two stars which seems like a, a particular crime uh, to me. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and,
1: and give it a, a solid three with a heart. Three with a heart. I you know, I was really torn if I was doing three or three and a three and a half, and I felt like I ended up at three and a half, but mostly it's just because the music yeah. and the joy that I ended up feeling with the film because of watching Barbara Streisand. Like I just felt like she stood out so much in this film for me. As an iconic screen uh, performance, mm-hmm. that I'm giving it that three and a half, largely because of that.
0: I'll, I will go with you. I'll give it three and a half. That's fine. Oh, well, I feel okay. good about that. Well, there you go. Uh, so, uh, okay, so there we go, and this actually wraps up our series of uh, films of the '60s musicals. At least our our first dip into this particular well. Uh, where do we go from here?
1: It's going to be a fun one, Pete. We're we're jumping back to. Uh, to look at a director, Catherine Bigelow, and I think it's going to be uh, a nice time just kind of looking at some of her films again as we kick it off with her 1987 film, Near Dark, and then we're going to be looking at the, uh, I guess you could say, somewhat iconic film now, her 1991 film, Point Break. And then we're wrapping it up with her most recent film, Detroit, which was released last year. Looking forward to all of those.
0: And Does that does that complete our catalog of Catherine Bigelow films?
1: Oh, heavens no. I want it to. I think there we're, we're
0: going to need to go see more.
1: There's The Loveless, her first film, Blue Steel. Uh, oh, then Blue Steel. there's The Weight of Water, K-19, The Widowmaker, and uh, that would be everything.
0: One more series.
1: I think yeah, maybe we'll do one more and yeah. we can just wrap her up. To,
0: I'd completely forgotten about K-19 too. That was not a great film.
1: I struggle with my memory of that film yeah i i felt like there were elements of it that i thought were pretty good but there was a lot of stuff that i felt i struggled with uh, namely harrison
0: yeah harrison ford is going to be what you're about to say yeah that was it was not uh it was not great but you know not one of his finer moments liam neeson i I wanted more out of that (laughs) sure did yeah sure did Anyway, well, this has been a lot of fun. I'm very much looking forward to this next set. The next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs our Instagram program all the way from Scotland. Ben Sterick is helping out with that. Ben Lott uh, of the Blot Spot runs all things Twitter. And the next reel theme, Ragtime Instrumental, and TNR film board theme, Crawlin' King Snake by Eli Catlin, can be found on SoundCloud. Thanks so much, Andy. When the movie ends...
1: Our conversation begins...
0: Amazon giveth Andy, as Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon! Amazon had some real trouble just delivering the product to a whole lot of people. It seems like
1: yes, they love to give one star reviews mm-hmm. if uh, Amazon fails on that account.
0: Yeah, but uh, so there were some choice, uh, you know, uh, people who were very disappointed in Amazon's performance uh, who actually loved this film. There were also a few that didn't like the movie itself. Uh, would you like to that? go? Would you like to go first? That
1: is correct. Yes, I have a one star by Linda Dancy, who says, hate it. I love this movie and have it on VHS, but I wanted a DVD. I ordered this one, and in the beginning, it has music and black screen playing for so long, I had to fast forward. And then in the middle, it stops and has a screen showing intermission. Horrible. Not sure if it was copied or what, but nothing like my VHS which is still what I will go back to watching.
0: Andy, it makes so much sense now. There were so many people who were so upset about the audio-only, no video. <laughs> exactly. I did not make that connection. It was, of course, the first five minutes is audio. It's just the, int- the introduction. It's just music. It's the music.
1: Yeah. <gasps> These people. You know, you know what's funny is the Netflix DVD that I have, yeah. it actually has that on the uh, the label where it says, Note. The first five minutes of this are black, are audio only, <laughs> with no picture. Wow. Be aware. It's like a note that people clearly do not get it.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Well, I just
1: love that this person, Linda, is so upset at her DVD that she's going back to her VHS. Yeah. Dad Dad
0: Dadgummit, indeed. Well, A. Uh, Chalion comes out uh, with this two-star review saying, it's not funny. How can a movie called Funny Girl be so depressing? <laughs> okay, Fanny Bryce had a depressing life. Why not just call it the Fanny Bryce story? The music was beautiful. Barbara Streisand's singing was amazing, but the voices of most of the other actors were so annoying I could barely get through the movie. Oh dear. Oh boy. Yeah. It's not oh, funny. Boy. It's funny girl is just not funny, Andy. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. Uh-huh.
1: And apparently, she liked that shot so much she adapted it for the conclusion of her directorial debut, *Lentil*. <laughs> Lentil. <laughs> 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 oh, <dear> God. <laughs>